Welcome to the Inspired Women Podcast. I am your host, women's empowerment coach and motivational speaker, Megan Hall. And on this podcast, I'm going to connect you with inspirational women who will share their real stories. And we're going to chat about topics relevant to women today. I'd love to continue to support you on your life's journey. Please join us in the Inspired Women community on Facebook. Thank you for tuning in today and enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. I wanted to pop in here before I share this week's interview with you. This interview is a bit longer, you'll notice, than our normal everyday podcast interviews, but there is not an ounce of this interview that can be or should be cut out, and I want to encourage you to listen to the entire thing. Kara's story is very profound, and I had a very emotional reaction to her story, and I hope that you will listen because I believe at some point in time, all of us... Um, are touched with this, whether personally like we experience it or we see somebody who is experiencing it. And I think that we need to understand the perspective of somebody going through this. So thank you for joining us today and I hope you enjoy. Hey guys, today I'm here with Kara. Kara and I actually met through Navy Wife Life. <laughs> and, accurate. Um, accurate. Accurate. Um, <laughs> So Kara is a Navy wife currently living in South Korea, recently moved too, like within the last couple of months. It's, I've enjoyed and also not envied uh, watching her, her go down with that and everything. I'm like, woo, good for you. Um, and she's the proud mama of a ridiculously goofy baby girl. So if we hear any baby noises in the background, that is why. Mm-hmm. She was yep. just, she was just giving me the lowdown, like giggling and smiling at me. She was adorable. Um, so Kara is a fitness enthusiast, musician, cat lady, fellow cat lady. Yes, cat ladies. Um, foodie and adventurer. She loves opportunities to share her experiences and passions with others. Her life has been filled with some of the highest highs and lowest lows. And she believes that all of it happened and will continue to happen for the purpose of guiding her to where wherever she's meant to be in this life. And I saw a post that Kara posted a couple months ago on Facebook and she shared a piece of her story that I did not know. And I think that we all need to hear Kara's story because um, at some point in time, I believe everybody experiences, maybe not personally, but um, with people they know, addiction. Uh, My uh, ex-fiance, my middle daughter's father is an addict. He, I, I truly believe the only times he was abusive was when he was on drugs or drinking heavily. I, I honestly don't think that's who he is when he's not doing that. Um, and so for me, um, personally, I want to hear what the perspective of somebody who's gone through this, because I feel like the only way we can understand is by learning from other people's stories And that's really, Kara, why I wanted to have you come on because I want to understand better, um, but I also want other people to, too. And and thank you for your bravery of, like, agreeing to come on because I know this, this is a, it's a huge topic. Um, And it's a taboo topic. And my favorite kind of, my favorite (laughs) kind of topics are the taboo ones. So share with us a little bit about your journey. Like, Start from the beginning. Where did it start? When did it begin? Like, you know, just lay it all out there. Let us know. Um, and, you know, if I need to pop in and ask questions along the way, I will. But, you know, let us just know what your journey was like and what led you to that place. 
For sure. So um, I have always like, I mean, from the time I was little, like I have always struggled with this. I don't fit here mentality. And so I've always been kind of battling my own persona in a lot of ways. And I actually feel like I still do that to some extent. Now it's more just like self-doubt and insecurity and things like that. But like, I have never had a lot of confidence. And growing up, I was always kind of chubby and like I look back at pictures of myself as a kid now and I'm like I really wasn't that overweight I was just bigger built and you know a lot of a lot of little girls are like teeny tiny little twigs so I compared myself to them and I was like I'm fat you know so I always had this mentality in my head that I was fat and then I started getting teased pretty mercilessly at school by those some of those tiny little twigs because I've said it many times in the past but like little girls are some of the meanest people in the world. (laughs) They're just like no filter. So, um, so it started with that. And my first addictive tendency was food. Um, and I would eat to feel better. So like addiction and, um, later alcoholism in my life has always been a, um, a curing kind of thing. It's been the way that I find peace or comfort, I guess, not peace, Mm -hmm. obviously, because it led me to be a hot mess, but Um, but that's how I found comfort. And so food was the first big one where like I was taking allowance money and I was buying sneakily buying donuts on the way to school because we walked in from school and then I'd walk home from school and I'd get king size candy bars and pints of Ben and Jerry's and I would eat it all and I'd stuff it all in a bag and then hide it in the dumpster outside so that my mom couldn't see. And like I would sneak into our pantry when my mom, she was a nurse, so she worked long shifts. So I'd sneak into the pantry and I'd get like all kinds of sweets and sugar and any type of addiction, like you're doing it to feel better, but then you feel worse because you did it. So it turns into a really vicious cycle really quickly. So it started with food. And then um, I obviously kept getting bigger because I kept eating. And then I got teased more because I was bigger, you know, where it was like, to the point where like random people would drive by on the street. Like I remember one guy in particular no idea who he was passing me as I was walking home one day and yells out the window, slow down on the cupcake, sweetheart. Oh my. And I was like, wow, that felt good. You know? So it was just, just kind of thing. And then of course your self esteem is just like in the, in the, am I allowed to swear on this? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's explicit. You can say all of the things on here. <laughs> so my self esteem at this point was just like totally in the shitter, you know, like I had no self-esteem whatsoever. And so I started looking for other outlets to feel better, like something to give me a little bit of a thrill, a little bit of a rush, because I was not experiencing that normally at all. Like I was probably a little depressed as a kid at various points. And it was just, you know, like my mom didn't recognize it. And my, I should say that my, um, my dad is, uh, addiction runs in our family. So he's had addiction problems as well. Um, and I inherited that lovely attribute. <laughs> and I mean, he's really cleaned up his life too, but um, it was my mom raising us and for the most part, and it was just me, her, and my brother. And so she could only recognize so much because she was working so hard to support us. And so as I got a little bit older, the um, food addiction kind of translated over into other stuff. I had a friend who was maybe not the best influence on me. Um, she had gotten into like drinking and smoking cigarettes really, really young. You know, the type of girl who looked like she was 16 when she was 12. 
yeah. um, just developed super early. And so I started hanging out with her and that's who I tried my first cigarette with. And we started shoplifting like crazy because you get this like rush, you know, like I can't mm-hmm. even tell you the amount of stuff I picked off of Bath and Body Works shelves. You know, it's like, we just, it was something else to get me by. And that's kind of an addiction in itself too, because you leave and you're like, I got away with all this. Like I started stealing money from my mom and my brother. Like I would go into my mom's change stash and I would steal all the quarters. And of course I was spending that usually on bad food. So it's like, it was just going downhill pretty quick. And um, by the time I got into high school, I was um, like three pounds shy of 200. And I was, you know, 14 years old, almost 200 pounds. And I'm not especially tall. I'm like five, six, you know, so I'm pretty average height. And I was almost 200 pounds. And I was so miserable, you know, and it's like, I used to also be the type who just like, throw myself in front of like, I would write love notes to the guys that I like, like, <laughs> I love, you know, not I love you. But like, I have a big crush on you. And I would find them like balled up by the trash later that day. So it's like, you know, my things were not looking great for, you know, little teenage Kara. And so I got to high school. And like, I was in some honors classes, like I'm smart, I've always been good at school. Mm -hmm. But I just stopped caring, like at all. And by sophomore year of high school, um, I was ditching classes, I had joined marching band, I for my 16th birthday, Um, there was like a little, a little uptick here where I, by 16th birthday, I really wanted either to get my tongue pierced or a tattoo. And so I was begging my mom for these. And she was like, there is no way in hell you're getting your tongue pierced. So (laughs) if you can lose 20 pounds, you can get a tattoo. And I was like, all right, it's on. So I joined marching band and I joined drumline and I was super active and like, I've always been active to some extent. I played soccer and everything, but like the eating habits were just awful. So I joined marching band and I actually got like a little group of friends and I was hanging out with these people and I was actually enjoying it. I had a couple of really, really good girlfriends. I had a couple of really good guy friends. Um, and I joined marching band and the weight just like fell off because you're exercising a ton, you know? Mm. And Um, and so I got that tattoo for my 16th birthday, but then when I got that tattoo, it was a little single stem daisy on my lower back. And I just thought I was like the coolest thing in the history of time. (laughs) I got a tattoo at 16 too. (laughs) And it just, it makes me feel like a total badass, right? Like I am the first of my (laughs) friends to have a tattoo. Like it's on, you know? And it's like, so I think that like, yes, marching band was really, really good for me, but it's like me and my friend found the one kid who was like a little bit of a rebel and he smoked cigarettes and we're like, Oh, we're going to start smoking with them. And dude smoke like Marlboro red 100s, like one of the harshest cigarettes you can smoke aside from like filterless cigarettes. And so we're smoking these things and I'm like, this is awful. But once you get addicted to cigarettes, it's really, really hard to quit. So mm-hmm. even though you smell like awful all the time and like, I just, you know, I got hooked on them. And so I started smoking cigarettes. I was about 16. And from there, it was just like that little uptick, that little glimmer of hope that had been there was just like, just straight down the tubes really, really fast. So um, we started smoking cigarettes with him. And then um, I had a family member, I will not specify who because if anybody listens to this, I don't want to call out my family members. (laughs) I have a family member 
um, who smoked marijuana. And so he um, let me smoke with him and his friends. And so I tried pot for the first time through him. Um, oh, no, that's not true. Okay, my dad was in recovery, right? He was in 12-step program. Mm -hmm. And he was friends with this other guy who was in the program and the guy had a daughter. And so my dad was like, oh, naturally the daughter of my program friend will be a good influence on my daughter. So this was at like 15. And I always forget about this because it was a while between that experience and the rest of my bad doing. Um, but this girl um, was super, super sweet. But like, I'd go to have a sleepover at her house. Turns out she like would change into skanky clothes and then sneak out at night to go hang out with <laughs> oh all these my. older people. So I was like, oh my God. And me, like, I did not know what skanky was. Like, I didn't lose my virginity till I was 18, you know? So it's like, if this, I was like little 14, 15 year old Kara, we're sneaking out of this girl's window. And I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing. And we go to this guy's like, it's like a, kind of like a garage that had turned into a little den and they're all passing around um hard lemonade and it was that smirnoff ice crap or yes whatever it was. that's what i used to drink smirnoff too yeah because uh, i was like oh this is fruity so you know we're drinking that and cigarettes were passed around and then pot was passed around and i was like i don't know how to smoke this you know and she's like i'll show you and so she showed me how and so, um, and the next day was Father's Day. And I remember that because I had been, you know, staying at my dad's. And I remember that because we went out to this Mexican place. And I remember my older brother just looking at me and he's like, you look terrible. And I'm like, I'm hungover, you know? And I didn't say that to him, but I'm like, I feel terrible. Like I felt like death. And because that was such an awkward experience for me, it wasn't something where I was like, oh, I need to go do that again. Like, I feel like a lot of, um, alcoholics and addicts kind of have this this defining experience where they're like oh the first time I tried it I was hooked that was it you know and for me it was a mix of like cool like I fit in because I'm doing everything that these people are doing even though I'm like awkward as fuck you know they're like whatever she's chilling she's not being weird so she's fine and on one hand I was like cool acceptance but on the other hand I was like that was awkward and I totally didn't fit in and I feel awful so I, it wasn't something I was like in a rush to repeat, but, um, so, um, 17, I get my first job, my first like restaurant job. I'd been working in food and I get a job as a hostess at TGI Fridays. And shortly after that, I turned 18 and I wanted to start like waitressing. And at this point I had been ditching so much school. I'd already had to repeat a couple classes in summer and I was still in band, but I just like did not give a fuck about anything. I was ditching classes all the time. I was getting horrible grades. I had gone from an AB student to like a CD student. And my mom was like, are you even going to graduate from high school? I just did not care. And like, I still had my group of friends, but I decided to go to independent studies because I wanted to just work and not be in class anymore. because I wasn't going anyways. And with independent studies, you could just go once a week and turn in your assignments and take your little tests. And I was still gonna complete my coursework on time. And I was asked if I wanted to walk with my class. And I said, nope, because I thought I was too cool for that. And I did not choose to participate in my graduation. And um, and I was like, no, you guys can go have fun. You can do senior ditch day. You can have you know all your little activities, senior night, whatever. I did go to prom. I went to my senior prom, but everything else I was like, why? Because academics were just like, I just did not care. So um, TGI Fridays is where things really got like, it was 18 to 21 or like my really, really hardcore years. So all of this led up to 
me having this like, don't give a fuck attitude. I'm an adult now. I'm cool. I know what I'm doing. And when you work in the restaurant industry, like after work drinking parties are super, 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 super common. <laughs> so we would, I started hanging out with some of the bartenders there and we would go to a couple different people's houses afterwards. And there was this girl that I hostess with and we would go and we would drink. And there was one night where there was a like warehouse party somewhere like in Lomita. This was all in Southern California and um, some warehouse party and we go there and they have um, like the, God, was it NOS that they would like fill the balloons with and you like inhale it and it gives you this kind of fuzzy headed feeling, but yes. there's some kind of like I think gas. it was NOS. Yeah. 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 So some kind of gas. So they have that. There was ecstasy, there was pot and there was drinking. And so I went to that and just got like completely obliterated and like I remembered after the fact that me and my friend Megan had like had to go out to the car to get something at one point and on the way back we saw a strip club and we actually went up and asked them um if they did amateur nights because we were gonna like try to make some money and like when I thought about that afterwards I was just like thank god they were like no because they're like well we would need to see id and we were gonna go back to the car to get our ids and i think we just totally forgot by the time we even walked away because we were so messed up and then i remember like barfing outside of the party and then i just like walked back in and kept drinking more you know and so it was just this like night of complete debauchery and the next day at work um i was talking to her and she was like i haven't slept and I was like, why? Because I went home and, you know, passed the fuck out. And I said, why? And she said, I was tweaking last night. And I was like, mm. what the fuck is that? I was like, I don't, what is this? You know, because all of this was like very new to me. And so she explained to me that it was crystal meth. For those of you who don't know, um, tweaking is crystal methamphetamine. It is an upper. Um, and it's, you know, around the category of cocaine but um like a lot harsher a lot harsher and so um she mentioned tweaking and I was like oh and so I um it was just kind of one of those things that passed by but like not too long after that it was probably within a couple weeks uh, we were hanging out at one of the parties and one of the guys was like we should get some coke and she said well I know a guy and so they called the guy and the guy didn't have any coke but he did have speed which is crystal meth so he has speed and so that was my first experience with it was we got some and we used it and um I never injected anything I didn't really hang out with anyone who used needles but I mean knowing me had they done it I probably would have done it too because I was such like a bandwagoner at that point um and because I felt like I was finally finding like my niche I mean not the best niche but it was like the first time in my life where I was like I'm hanging out with these people and I'm cool and I'm an adult and I'm a grown up and they want to do grown up things and I'm going to be so awesome. And, um, and so I tried it and it like, oh my God, it's such like a, first of all, it burns the crap out of your nose and like, it makes you sick. And like I, but it gave me this complete high, obviously. And the, the addiction to stuff like this is so easy because you get like this rush, you get instant gratification. And my whole life, I had been looking for something that was like, boom, now you feel better. And like shoplifting was, you know, something that would get you up and then get you down. Eating was something that would get you up and then get you down. And with this, like, obviously you come down, but it was such 
an intense feeling that I was like, this is, you know, let's find more of this. And so that was really the start of like my complete downward spiral. And um, drinking was always a component, but drinking didn't really like take the front seat of my addictions until the end because the front was so drug heavy. Um, And I found that when I was really heavily using that when I drank, it usually made me nauseous or throw up. Like I was a puker. I was the puker out of the the (laughs) group there. Some people could just layer on top of layer and not get sick. And I would do this stuff and I would just, I was always throwing up. So um, I ended up getting involved with this group that was in um, San Pedro, which is crazy because that's also where I ended up getting sober. Um, but I ended up getting involved with this group that was just this group of friends. And there was like, there was a house, there's always a house that's like the drug house. And I pretty much lived at this place for like a solid three months and would hardly ever talk to my mom. Um, my dad would call and try to check in on my once in a while. And I learned later that he was trying to talk to her at the time and just explain, like, I think she might have what I have you know I think this might be a thing and my mom was just really fighting it she's like no because I'm sure it's really hard to think about your kid in that light like my child is an addict kind of thing um but her and I had just like I mean she'd been sick of my behavior for a long time because I was so disrespectful you know just like pretty much telling her to go fuck off and like probably within those words at various points and just Um, I just thought I was so much better than everybody else. I was so cocky and so arrogant. And I know that looking back now, I was also really, really scared, like 95% of the time. And so a lot of my lashing out was just out of pure fear and like doubt because the whole time I was in the middle of this stuff, I was just like, what if I fuck up? Like, what if I, you know, what if I do this? What if I do that? Because you never know, you know? And Mm. the guy that I was hanging out with, the guy whose house I was staying at, OD'd three times while I was staying there and I watched them and the first oh I should also add in that um after I started trying meth I got introduced to um a couple other things the first I did try coke and I was like coke is kind of you know I was I liked the punch that speed had um but several people there smoke crack And so I tried that and that ended up being my drug of choice for about six months. Um, And that's what he was doing. And so I would watch him. um, I watched him OD the first time and I was just like terrified. And I went on a drive and I will say that my friend who had been the rebel with me in high school when we were ditching to go smoke cigarettes with that guy, I brought her along for the ride. So she was with me for most of this experience not quite as heavy into it as I was but we were both there that day when the guy OD'd the first time and I was like I need to get out of here and like I went on a drive um and when I came back he was like totally he's like oh you know like no big deal he was smoking again and I was just like how are you using again right after you just like over like I don't understand and in that moment I had this like brief moment of clarity like this is bad, Kara. Like, this is not normal. And you should probably leave. But I didn't. I stayed because if I went home, I was going to deal with angry mom and there weren't going to be any drugs. And I was just going to be left there, like, feeling awful. And with, like, and then coming down, which was like the worst fucking thing ever. 
And, you know, we weren't sleeping for days at a time. Like it'd be two, three days and I would maybe sleep for like 30, 45 minutes. So when you crash, you crash for like 24 hours and then you come back at it and you're like, oh, good to go, you know, and you just jump right back in the game. And it's like, I had lost a ton of weight at this point. I think I was down to like 145 pounds. And I was just like, I looked in the mirror and I was like, oh yeah, like my stomach is in farther than my ribs for the first time in my life. And I thought this was like some kind of accomplishment, but I, I'm so glad that we were, that addicts don't take pictures of themselves because I cannot even imagine what I looked like at that point. It was probably disgusting. Like I probably had sunken in cheeks. And like my mom said that when I came home from there, she said she felt like like in a she said I felt like you were just this like lost dirty little rat she's like that's what you had gotten to and like that was obviously devastating to hear but what I also learned later is that that whole time that I was gone she had actually gone to the doctor because she was so stressed out that she was becoming physically ill like she her stress levels were just through the roof because she would look at the door every night and hope that I'd come home and then I hadn't come home again. And, um, and she, when she was going to the doctor, they're like, you need to find a way to lower the stress in your life or you're going to have like some terminal ailments coming up really quick. And so like, I was literally worrying her to death. And that was like, you just don't know, like the, the hardest part about all of addiction and alcoholism is that when you're in the middle of it, you have no fucking clue what's going on. Like you're so lost and you're so consumed by everything that's going on so that the rest of the world around you is just like, it's just a haze. Like you're aware that there are other people and that life is going on. But it's like, I was in this house all the time. Like I barely saw sunlight. You know, when we went out, we went out at night and like, I was to the point where I was, you know, on sleep deprivation and so loaded all the time that like we would go drive places to like, and I'd help some of the dealers in the area drop off their stuff because then they give me free stuff. And I would hallucinate like shadow kids on like tricycles and stuff, like in front of the car. And I would slam on the brakes in the middle of the street when there wasn't anything there. Like you're in this total place of just unaware and delusional and just like totally immersed. So it was several months like that. And what actually got me out of that was this guy, this guy, Ryan, who I had like, hooked up with a little bit before he moved out of California. We worked at, Fr at TJ Fridays together. And I remember writing him an email one night and I was like, I'm so lost. I'm so scared. Like, I don't know. It was a very candid email. I don't know how much I meant it, but um, he, as, as one of his friends had said to me one time, he thought I was the cat meow. So um, <laughs> I, which is like, probably one of the cutest things anyone's ever said about me, but, um, sorry, husband. Uh, so, <laughs> um, so I reached out to him and he flew me out to Michigan to stay with him. And I brought crack rocks with me through LAX to Wisconsin where I, or Michigan, sorry, um, to Michigan and like smoked in the airport bathrooms and was smoking outside waiting for him. And like, what the fuck? You know what I mean? Like what in, like, I think about that now and I'm like, dude, like that, I mean, what was like, when I say you're not thinking, like, I'm not fucking kidding, you know? And so prior to leaving for this trip, um, I made a very poor decision and a guy had stolen 
some, so crack is made from Coke. So a guy had stolen a bunch of cocaine from one of the dealers who was napping at the guy's house where I was staying and he had given me some. And this guy who had stolen from was kind of like an a-hole. So I was like, oh, this is fine. So I had stolen a bunch of stuff right prior to this trip. So I go on this trip and, um, and while I'm staying with my friend Ryan, like he, I sleep most of the time I'm there. Um, I ran out of my supply of stuff. So I was just kind of coming down, but you know, we hung out and he just really wanted like something better for me. And, um, and you know, I could see that like he really cared, but I couldn't like, I couldn't care back, you know, I couldn't care back. And when I came, by the time I came home, I was there for maybe four or five days. And by the time I came home, I was sober, but like all I could think about was going back to my friend's house, was going back to the guy's house and getting more. And when I went back, the dude that we had stolen from found out that we had stolen from him. And he pretty much cornered me in a room and was like, you need to confess up to this. And he was absolutely terrifying. Um, and there was, there's so much stuff that went on while I was in San Pedro that like, I won't even get into the details of, but um, it's like, it, just imagine one of the most insane places that you can be for three months at a time and all this crazy shit happens and you just stay anyways, you know, like to the point where, um, you know, he was sick of me being there at one point, the guy that we ended up stealing from. And so he literally had me by the neck of my sweatshirt and was like dragging me across the house one day. And we had to scream at him to let me go. Like it was insane. Like just the level that things got to was just nuts. And I just stayed anyways. So I get there and he corners me and calls me out on this and pretty much says, if you ever come back here, I'm going to kill you. And when somebody like him says something like that to you, you believe them. So that was the last time I was ever at that guy's house. And I came home and I came down and I got my whole system cleared out. And that was in December of 2014. Yeah. Cause that was the year. No, 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 no. Way earlier than that. 2014. <laughs> I was uh, like, 2000, I've known you since 2014 probably. <laughs> 2004. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So 2004, um, so it's like all of this happened. I graduated high school in June of 2004 and this was December of 2004. So like all of this happened in half a year. And so I get home, my mom's got some hope back up. You know, I've got this shit cleared out of my system. I'm still smoking pot occasionally and I'm smoking cigarettes, but like that's the least of our issues. And she was dating a guy at the time and she took me to the Christmas party and I met his nephew and his nephew happened to be into speed. So this guy was like nine years my senior and I was, so I was um, 18 and he was 27 when we started dating and like we went out um, on a date not too long after that and you know, we got some drinks and um, like went and drank on the hood of his car and we were talking about things and he kind of like, he was like, so what was, you know, what was crack like? And like, when you know, you're talking to another alcoholic or addict when they're excited that you've done a drug, you know? So he's like, what was this like? Like, that's crazy, blah, blah, blah. And so we were kind of talking about it. And that's how I found out he was into speed. So it's like, I was so fresh out of my old situation that there was, I had not realized that like, this was a bad idea. You know, I was just like, huh. So of course, what do I do wanting to impress this new guy is I connect him with one of my old dealers that was in San Pedro and thus starts 
a almost year long relationship with this guy that ended up being emotionally abusive. Um, we had all kinds of like horrible, horrible verbal throwdowns. Um, there was one point where we were both like fairly high and I was really pissed because he wouldn't say he was about to leave for a trip and he wouldn't say bye to me the way that I wanted him to say bye to me. And like, I just would not let it go. And he no shit grabbed a garden hose and sprayed me down like, so that I was dripping wet. And, you know, sometimes I think about that and I'm like, that was pretty fucking funny. But then I think about it and I'm like, that was also probably the most degrading thing that has ever happened to me because I'm standing there and this guy is just like treating me like a dog, you know, like that's how you treat a dog. That's not, like, I've sprayed my cats with water bottles when they're doing things they're not supposed to do, you know? And I look back at that and I'm like, why did I come back? after that, you know, like, why did I, you know, I was like, this is it. Like, you know, my friend, the same, my ride or die buddy, the same girl I had had with me in St. Peter, the same girl I'd been in band with came to pick me up. And she's like, why do you keep going back? And I was like, no, this is it. This is, it was always the final time. And, um, we got in an awful car accident one day and, um, we had been on a 24 hour fishing boat and we had run out of drugs while we were on it. So we were going to go to Pedro afterwards and pick up more. And we took the wrong off ramp. And like, we were fairly sober, you know, we were coming down from everything, but he had only had one beer and we were just singing along to, I'll never forget a country version of gin and juice. And we're singing along, we're having a great time and we're going down this off ramp and he had a big raised, um, uh, Chevy blazer. So like this big steel monster, like a 1970 something Chevy blazer take the off ramp too fast, flip the truck and both ended up getting out of it with just like some scratches and bumps. I had to get stitches on the left side, but like it's in my birthmark. So I lucked out because you can't see the scar at all. But, um, but you know, like a bump, a permanent bump on my head. And like, there was a V of metal on my side of the car. Like I remember the cop just looking at the car and looking at me and looking at the car and looking at me and they're like, are you sure you're okay? And like, had it not been made of steel, I easily easily would have been dead easily. If that had been like a plastic car, like they make today's easily would have been dead because we, we smashed up against a, um, a light post on my side of the car. So there was like a big via metal. And I remember like, he looked at me and he's like, you know, I may have missed that speed limit sign, but I didn't miss this sign. You know, look at what we were on our way to do. And like alcoholics and addicts are very dramatic, you know, like we're like, I had this big epiphany. I had this big awakening and sure as shit, like within a week, you know, bumps and bruises are healing up. And he's like, you want to go get some shit? And I was like, okay. Like, why? <laughs> you know, like, why? This guy has hosed me down. Um, I will also say that I had a tendency to lie about things that I should not lie about. And in the beginning of our relationship, um, I had told him that I was on birth control when I was not. Like, I don't know why. Like, I would just lie about the dumbest things, things that could easily hurt me. And so prior to like the first three months, it's insane how much happened in the first three months of our relationship. Like we had been dating for about a month and a half and I found out I was pregnant. Um, I was just shy of 19 and I found out I was pregnant um, the day before Valentine's day. And we had broken up for one of our like 18,000 breakups at this point. So we had broken up and on February 13th, I found out I was pregnant. And then February 14th, it was Valentine's day and February 15th was his birthday and so I remember calling him to say happy birthday. I did not tell him that I was pregnant. And a, like a, maybe a week later, my mom came to me and she asked me if I was depressed. And I said, well, my period is late. And she said, honey, are you pregnant? And I was like, yeah. 
And she was like, with Matt? And I said, yeah. And so like, I, you know, was, I had a lot of mixed feelings about abortion. And I also, you know, knew that, like, I was looking at myself and I was like, oh, I have this life inside of me, you know, like just totally not actually like I've been pregnant and I have a child now. So like the feeling I had when I was pregnant this time was like, holy shit, you know, I'm going to have a kid. But like, then I, w I still was a kid, you know? And like, I was in the middle of this like drug addicted craze. And so it was just like, it's just, you're just so delusional. Like that is the biggest, every time I think about that whole span of my life, I'm just like, I was so delusional because I was like, I have this life inside of me and I'm going to better myself. And, you know, I was like two weeks pregnant and I was like, I think my belly is getting harder. No, it fucking wasn't. You know what I mean? Like it was not like, it doesn't happen that fast, you know, but in my head, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm imagining all these beautiful things are happening when in reality, I have no idea what's happening. And, and, you know, I start talking to my mom and she's like, honey, I'm not going to raise this child for you. You know, like I can't do that and you're not going to take care of it. And I was like, I will, you know, I totally will. And then I called my dad and he said, no, sweetie, I'm sorry. I can't have you here. You know? And I'm like, the fuck, you know, like I'm pregnant. Like they're, they're forcing me to have an abortion is what I thought in my head. And then I started thinking about the guy that I was dating at the time. And I was like, maybe not father material, you know? And I started thinking about my life and I was like, my parents aren't going to help me with this. And so I made the decision to have an abortion. And, um, and so that was on March 1st of that year that I had that. So like we start dating in December and then I found out I was pregnant in mid February. And then I had the abortion on March 1st. And then like two weeks later was when we went on the fishing trip. Cause we got back together. Obviously I didn't tell him about the abortion until afterwards. Um, and then uh, a couple weeks later we went on that fishing trip, got in the nasty car accident, took like a week off of using and then went right back to it. And then a week after that I turned 19. So like all of this super intense chaos happened from 18 to 19. And then the rest of the time I was with him, um, I was stealing from him. We were still getting in these horrendous arguments and it just like, we just dragged out a really long year of misery. Um, and then I met another guy who had some, definitely a chip on his shoulder. Um, and I started kind of talking to him and dating him. And I decided to break up with dude a to be with dude B and dude B granted was a lot better for me. Um, but lots and lots and lots of drinking. And so that is kind of where the drinking started taking over because I wasn't hanging out with users as much anymore. Um, I was, I went to a couple raves around this time, but like I had really seen the devastation. And I will say that when I was pregnant, um, was when I finally stopped smoking crack because I remember smoking like these little scraps, like you're desperate in this mode. And I remember finding these little scraps and I, um, I smoked them one day while I was pregnant. And I remember thinking, what the fuck am I doing? Like I'm pregnant and I say that I'm ready for this child. And here I am like putting drugs in my body. Like what, what Kara, like, what are you doing? You know? So that was the end of that. But then when we got back together, I started doing speed again and that became my drug of choice for our entire dating relationship. And you know, it's like, I never really, I had like a bunch of really negative man encounters during this time too. Like people taking advantage of the fact that I was wasted or scared or, you know, whatever. And like, there were so many experiences where it's like, 
you know, along with being delusional, like your self-esteem is just like fucking gone. It's gone, you know? And I feel like maybe even more so I've, I've never been a guy, so I can't really speak for the male population, but I feel like, especially with females, like we have a really hard time thinking highly of ourselves anyways. So then when we're putting ourselves in situations that we know we shouldn't be in, you know, and when we're doing things we know we shouldn't be doing. And like, I mean, I was aware on some peripheral level that like my family was in shambles, you know, and that like, I completely fucked over every friend I ever had. Like I was aware of that. I could see my life falling apart, but it was like over there somewhere, you know, it was off in the distance and I wasn't really too concerned with it because I was so consumed with myself. And so like this whole time though, like I'm like, I remember, um, I'll just be very candid. I was hooking up with this guy at one point and I remember saying to him, like, you know, that hurts. And he said, calm down. I'm just fucking you, baby. And I remember thinking like, wow, like, yeah. And I remember thinking like, my feelings don't matter at all. You know, like my comfort doesn't matter. My feelings don't matter. What I want doesn't matter. Like, okay, got it. Thank you for letting me know that, you know? And so, and then I'm continuing to partake in these drugs and alcohol and addictions that are like only feeding that just like self rot that's going on on the inside. And by the time you're doing this for, you know, X amount of time for me, it only took a few years for some people, it takes decades. Um, but like that, it really is a rot, you know, and I feel like there was always a little bit of that rot. That's what I turned to food and shoplifting and cigarettes for in the beginning. And it just like festered for years because I never addressed it and I never knew what to do about it. And then it just, started blossoming and taking over like a cancer. Like it just starts taking over your entire being until you can't think properly or behave properly. And you've just lost like all sight of reality. And you're just walking around. Like you're just this empty shell. Like you're just this dark, miserable, empty shell. And, you know, one of the things that I, I just gave myself chills, <laughs> but um, like one of the things that I think is most interesting when people get sober is you literally see a light come back on in their eyes. Like if you look at somebody who's been drinking and using for a long time or who's really towards the bottom, they kind of almost have this like hazy, foggy look to their eyes. Mm -hmm. And you clean their ass up for a month and you get them, you know, some help and some self-esteem back. And all of a sudden you'll look at them and be like, holy crap, your eyes sparkle again. You know, like I look at my little girl and she just has like the most twinkly, clear, magic, innocent eyes. And I'm like, that's the eyes of a newly sober person, <laughs> you know, like yeah. that, that light that comes back on where it's like, there's some kind of little spark back in you. Like that rot has started to subside just a teeny, teeny bit maybe. So, um, so I get involved with drinking dude and like we start drinking and, um, during, God, was it during at some point here, I think we had broken up at that point because I was smoking pot and he really didn't like that. And, um, I was lying about it, which he liked even less. And I may have cheated on him a couple of times, which he also didn't like. So he dumped me fairly, totally fairly. Um, but then I just started, I started, um, I lied about my age and started hanging out at this gay bar where I started working karaoke every once in a while. And I was like 19, 20 at the time. And, um, when I was 20, one of the nights I went to go pick up some ecstasy and pot from a friend and I was on my way back and I got pulled over because there had been some cops watching this particular location where I went to go pick some stuff up and they saw me come and go very quickly at two 30 in the morning, which is 
slightly suspicious mm-hmm. and um, they pulled me over and they, and I was just like, I, you know, I'd never been pulled over before. I've never even gotten like a traffic violation up until this point. So um, long story short with that, I ended up getting charged with a felony for possession, trafficking and intent to sell because of the way things had been bagged. They'd been bagged separately because I picked up one amount. And then for whatever stupid fucking reason, I kept that on me when I went to go pick up the other amount. So it's like I had ecstasy bagged separately. I had pot bagged separately. Thank God I had not taken anything yet because otherwise I would have been in a jail cell, in a skirt, in a tank top with my hair curled, all ready to party, sitting in a freaking jail cell instead, like learning that I was being held on $30,000 bail. And, um, you know, I had to call this friend and like, see if they could help me get out of jail. And I didn't understand that bail bonds were like 10%. So anyways, I go through this whole thing. I get bailed out. Um, my friend ends up getting arrested the next night um, because they came and raided his apartment. And so that starts this whole, so now I have a felony. I'm 20 years old and I have a drug felony. And I was, it was advised by um, the lawyer that my dad loaned me money for um, that I get, that I plead my case as a user and not as a dealer because if you're a dealer because I wasn't a dealer first of all um and because if you say like I have the problem then they'll send you to drug court and that's a whole different ball game whereas if you're getting charged as trafficking and selling you're getting sent to like adult prison you know <laughs> with like yeah. the the real like crime so um so I plead the case so I have to go to this outpatient program so I'm going to this outpatient program and I was just put into level one, which is the lowest possible level. But being the good alcoholic and addict that I am, I completely fucked that opportunity up by just not going because I was not, a, you just like, I couldn't show up for anything either. Like birthdays, holidays, didn't matter. Didn't matter what the celebration was. I would make up some excuse. I would be sick. I would be busy. I wouldn't have gas money, you know, whatever it was. I just like could not show up for things. And so, um, I missed my first intake. And so I got bumped up to level two. So I was going, I was having a drug test. I was having to, um, they had never done alcohol swabs until I'd been there for like a couple months, but like all this stuff was coming up dirty. You know what I mean? And it's a three strikes you're out kind of program. So it's like, if you fuck up three times, then you either go to jail or you go to an inpatient treatment program. And during this whole time I'm working at the gay bar, this is where my drinking really took off because the drugs had taken a big back seat at this point. So I start just like drinking like crazy. I'm packing back on weight because drinking makes you super, super bloated. I'm back to my binge eating. I'm starting to drink alone. Um, You know, I have like a bottle of vodka in the freezer and I'm just sitting at home watching, you know, some stupid movie and I'm just going to the kitchen to take shots of vodka, like sitting around in my pajamas by myself. Um, And, you know, I just keep getting these degrading relationships with men and I am just like, I'm just a hot mess, you know, and I'm choosing to hang out with people who are making me feel worse. And, um, and it's just not like, I just, at that point, at that point, I think I was starting to finally see that like, Hey, you're 20 years old and you have a felony. Like maybe something is wrong. Maybe something is wrong, but it took me a long time to even accept ownership of that felony because they lied on my police report because they had to have a reason to pull me over they couldn't just be like, she looked suspicious. So they said that, um, I had been swerving, which I know was not true because I was super sober and I was a very good driver, but I was like, Oh, it's their fault. You know, they, they lied. It's their, it's always somebody else's fault. It's Mm -hmm. always somebody else's fault when you're in that situation. So, um, 
So I ended up going to this outpatient program and flunking out. I had three dirty tests, like, duh, because I could not, like, it's not something that you can, like, this isn't a choice at this point. I'm not thinking, like, I want to have a dirty test. Therefore, I'm going to go drink and use, you know? And, like, there was, Coke had been reintroduced at this point, so I was doing Coke once in a while. And I was definitely smoking pot, like, pretty often. And, um... And like things were starting to work less for me too. Like I remember I never had a bad relationship with pot, but I went and smoked at a friend's house after not having smoked for a few months. And I got really, really paranoid and like really nervous. And I was like, this is new, you know, like this is, this has always worked for me before. Like, why is it not working now? You know? And I was drinking and I'd still be depressed. And I was like, and for those of you who don't know, alcohol is a depressant. So it does not actually boost your moods. So if you're already in a bad place and you drink, you might end up feeling worse. And I was always the happy social, like kiss anybody who's pretty kind of drunk, you know? So um, when alcohol started making me feel worse, I was like, this is not like, I only have one solution and it's not working for me anymore. And I don't know what to do about that. So I flunk out of this outpatient program and I remember going to court and like my mom like literally went into the back, like the judge was like, I want to talk to your mom. And so my mom actually went into the back of the courthouse one time and was like chatting with the judge and begged him to not send me into inpatient treatment a couple of times because she wanted so badly for there to not be anything wrong with me too, you know? And, um, and finally we got to the point where I had that third dirty test and a dirty alcohol test at this point. And it was like, okay, obviously something is wrong here. And, um, and he said, I'm not going to send you to jail. I am going to send you to an inpatient treatment program. And I had avoided San Pedro like the plague at this point, because it was just like, it was haunted for me as far as I was concerned. And, um, and when I talked to the people who ran my outpatient program, they said, you're going to go to the house of hope in San Pedro. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to say like if I go back there I'm going to be killed like you don't understand like this is how that this is what that looks like I'm not allowed back in that town and um and they said no this is the best place this is where you're going and so when I I turned 21 at this time so um so just to to recap the real shit show started like June of 2004 and October 22nd 2007 I walked in the doors at the house of hope that was my first official day sober. I was 21 and a half. I was back to 200 pounds and I had no idea what had happened to my life. And I looked back at all of it and I was like, what the fuck? Like all I remembered was like being in high school and being in band with my friends. And then it was just like an abyss for a few years after that of just like misery. And I was so insecure. And I was just so angry all the time. So angry and so lost. And like, I remember my mom and I, you know, to kind of digest the idea of me being gone. This is a six month residential treatment program. And for the first, um, for the first two weeks, you don't have any communication with outside people, no phone calls to loved ones, no visitors, nothing like that. And after 30 days, um, or after those two weeks, you can call, but then you don't see anyone for the first time for 30 days. And there were like 20, 22 women in this program altogether. And, um, and so I'm living with like a bunch of other alcoholics and addicts. I'm living with a bunch of women. I didn't really like women at that point, which is like 
so wildly different from my life today. It's just not even funny, you know? Like, I mean, you know, like the where we met, like that yeah. group is some of the best women I've ever encountered. And when I went into this program, I was like, shit, man, like I'm not friends with women. Women are bitches. Like, I mean, to be fair, I was kind of a bitch too, you know, but I was like, like they are all going to do it to me, you know, and just like having no idea what this is going to look like. But my mom and I would kind of joke and be like, oh, maybe it'll be like a vacation, you know, it'll be like a little vacation and then you can come back and everything will be fine. That's not how sobriety works. Like you don't just go and take six months off and then come back to normal life. Like, and I think that was the the hardest thing for me to adjust to was like when I got sober, I really kind of had to let everybody go at some point. And it didn't, it wasn't immediate. And I think that's one of the hardest things too, is like, you have a habit, you know, I was going out to three or four different bars. I was hanging out with the same 10, 20 people. I had the same routine. I was doing the same kind of stuff. When you get sober, those people keep doing all of those things. So like, you don't really have anything in common with them anymore. So you lose your entire life the day that you get sober if you decide to stay sober. But what I gained during those six months, like I was introduced to two different 12 step programs, one of which I ended up sticking with because I just identified more. Um, two different 12 step programs. We were doing work. I had to write a freaking autobiography about myself and then share it with a group of like 15 other women and we were given different levels of risk. I learned to make my bed, no shit, 21 years old, making my bed for the first time in my life. Like I never made my bed before. I was like, how do you do this? Where do you tuck in the sheets? Like just did not know I was doing chores. Um, I was like standing in line to go places. It was like, like elementary school for adults because when like, I didn't know how to adult. I'd never learned. Like I had spent my formative adult years telling people to go fuck themselves. So it's like, I get to 21 years old and I'm like, I don't know how to do really basic stuff. Like the most adult thing I could do was cook and do laundry, you know, but like basic stuff, like save money, you know, and like, don't lie. And like, listen, you know, things like that. I just had never learned how to do and like take care of other people before you take care of yourself, which was something I kind of had to unlearn later. Like a lot of the 12 step programs are very outward focused because we spent so long being arrogant, self-absorbed, like they define us as tornadoes in the 12 step programs. Like we're, we're tornadoes just tearing our way through people's lives because there were very few people I encountered whose lives I didn't fuck up in some way. Almost inevitably, if I met you during my dark days, you were probably going to get burned at some point. So, um, you know, I, I'm like starting to learn all this stuff about myself and I'm starting to learn that like, I'm not real crazy about this person, like who I was. And they had family nights where we had some real down and dirty conversations between me and my mom and my dad. Cause I got to say to my dad, some things that had been festering for a while too. Um, but you know, six months is like, that's nothing. Six months is the blink of an eye, you know, and it went by really fast. And when I came out of there, I was like, no, when I'm done, I'm going to go home. That was my plan. I was going to go live back with my mom. But that six months was so impactful. And like, I got a sponsor. I worked the steps. I was going to meetings. I was speaking at meetings. I was like, I had done a lot of really intense work on myself and figured out, you know, who, oh, there she is. Um, I had done a lot of really intense work on myself and, um, and oh, for those of you who can't see me on a video, that was me looking at the baby monitor. <laughs> so I said, whoops, there she is. I'm like, they can see me. No, no, you can't. But anyways, that's, I don't just like utter whoops, there she is. 
periodically, but um, <laughs> so it's like six months of super intense work on myself. And only then did I start to see, like, that's when I learned about how sick my mom had been while I was out there. And that's when I learned about how she would look and just pray that I let, like, she could look down the hall and see that I had turned off the light when I came in and time after time she would see the light still on and she would just not know where I was and not know how I was or if I was alive. And like, I had to call her from jail too. And like, when she got that call, she was just like, at first she kept hanging up because she thought it was some random because it said like, this is, it's got like a very movie phone kind of voice, which I thought was just absurd given what the call is. And it's like, this is the inmate hotline, you know? And I'm like, oh, this is not, you know, this is not the cheery tone that I want greeting my mother. And so I had to like yell my name into it. And when she finally heard that it was me after I called three or four times, she was like, God fucking damn it. Fuck. God fucking damn Like she was so mad. And like, I mean, I don't blame her. Like her 20 year old daughter had been calling her from jail. So probably not ideal. And she's like, I just knew. And she told me in our family night, she said, you know, I knew I was going to get a call. It was either going to be you saying that um, you were done. You know, that was the call I was always praying for. And she's like, or it was, or, and she said, or I was going to get a call from jail or I was going to get a call from the police saying that something happened to you. Or I was going to get a call from the hospital saying that you were in there. She's like, I knew I was going to get one of those calls. And she's like, and I was afraid that one of them was going to be that I was going to get the call that you had died. And she's like, and not knowing whether I was going to get that call every single day just absolutely ripped me up inside. And I'm looking at this woman, I'm like, I had no clue what she was going through, you know? And like, at some point I need to talk to her because now that I have, she's sitting up in her crib, just like hanging out. Um, but uh, at some point, you know, like since I've had my own baby, like the amount of love that you have for a child is like, holy hell, you know? And like, it's one of those things as I know, you know, like it's one of those things you just don't know until you've had your own kid. There's no way, there's no way you can understand that until you've had a child of your own. And when she told me that I was just like, I know what she's talking about. You know, it's, I love her, you know, and like, I love my husband, you know, I, I love them. But when I had her, I was like, there is nothing she could do that would stop me from loving her. You know, there's nothing she could do that would stop me from loving her. And I think about her, my mom feeling like that about me and then all the things that I put her through. And it's like, I just had no fucking clue. I had no idea. And like, that's, and like, I watch, you know, TV shows sometimes and I watch how alcoholics and addicts are portrayed. And it actually makes me kind of mad sometimes because I feel like it's so inaccurate. It's so unrealistic. It's It's so so unrealistic. Like I used to, I'm going to call one show out. I used to watch Nashville and they had a guy on there who was an alcoholic and like, he would like have an argument with his girlfriend and then throw away 10 years of sobriety. It doesn't happen like that. Like it, this is a buildup. There's something you're not, there's something within you that's not right. If you're like going back to your addiction that quickly. You're not fully healed. You're not fully healed. And like so many people get into a program and they're like, I feel better. Therefore I'm going to kind of slack off. Like I worked all my steps. I sponsored women for many years. Like I was sober in California for, God, I got sober in 2007 and I moved, I was um, sober for seven years there before I moved out of the state. And I sponsored like, I don't even know how many women because not all of them stay, but like I took four women all the way through. I always tell, I call them my golden four and like, I'm still close with all of them and they are just absolutely the lights of my life. And 
Um, they, because when you sponsor the women, you take other people through this process, you learn even more about yourself because you start mm-hmm. to see some of your, you know, um, some of your weaknesses as like a leader and a guide kind of, and you start to, and they bring up things where you're like, Oh my God, I forgot about this. But like you clean house. If you're really going through those 12 steps, you clean house, like you get down and dirty and things get ugly. And then you have to like tell somebody else all of your dirty, like all of your dirty little secrets. Like my sponsor knows everything about me, you know, everything that I would never, ever, ever tell another living soul in my life. She knows. And so there's a whole lot of trust you got to put in that person, but it's like, you're doing a lot of work on yourself. And so Um, I decided to stay in San Pedro ultimately, which still just baffles me because like I, it was such a negative experience and it turned into such a positive one. And I think there might be such a big recovery community there because there's such a bad drug problem there. Like somebody can walk from the crack house to the sober house within two blocks, you know? So it's like, there's a lot of, and it's in kind of the, the sober houses are in kind of the shady area of San Pedro too. So like it's where there's shit going down. And, um, I'm just sitting in her crib laughing right now. I can't like, I can't deal with her. Um, so, um, so yeah, so I mean, that's like, so I ended up getting sober. I stayed in San Pedro for several years. Um, and I, you know, got to make amends with a lot of my family. Um, and then, um, several years in one of the big amends that I had always wanted to make was to that guy, Ryan, who had flown me out to Michigan because he had really Mm -hmm. taken care of me. And like, I brought drugs into his home and I did end up visiting him once more after that. Um, but, um, after I moved to Colorado, I was on Facebook one day when I was at my job and I saw people posting things and tagging him and saying like, my God, Ryan, please tell me it's not true. Oh my God, Ryan, I can't believe the news. And I was like, the fuck is happening? So I went and I, um, reached out to one of his friends and I, or I, I commented on something and I said, what the hell happened? Like, can somebody tell me what happened? And I get a message from one of his friends saying that he had been um, really, really depressed and he had killed himself. And I was just like completely devastated because this is like, and this was after I had started dating my now husband and I called him just like in shambles and I explained the situation. I said, this guy was so good to me. He was like one of the purest men in my life. And um, he had just gotten really, really depressed. He had a lot of health issues and Um, and so it was like one of those things where it's like, you know, I try not to think about having regrets because like, I've learned so much from the road that I've been on, but at the same time, I, I regret that I regret not being, not having the opportunity. And like, I, you know, absolutely plan to go to Michigan at some point and just go graveside and just, you know, make an amends to him because I think it would be really healing, but it's like you cause so much wreckage while you're out there. Like you are just this like destructive little monster who's just going all around the world. And like, I just, like I was saying about TV, the way that it's portrayed, like they, there's no way you can capture the way an addict or alcoholic feels about themselves. You can't capture that on film. You know, it's so hard and it's so hard to like, even explain, like even when I'm explaining like how bad you feel, because I've talked about this so much that like, Sometimes I still get choked up or have that emotional attachment, but it's something that I've discussed so much that I'm like, do people even believe me that I really felt that? that, You know, it's like, it's something that I just wish, like, I don't want anyone to have to feel like that, but I just wish that I could like help people understand how, like how consumed you are 
when you're in that kind of life, you know, and like when you, you know, when you said about your ex-husband, like the violence and stuff like that, like a lot of people have that kind of violent tendency and those kinds of behaviors when they're sober or when they're, when they're not sober and then you clean them up and they're the nicest fucking people in the world. Mm -hmm. And it's just crazy because there are so many things. And like some people are really just assholes. Like some people are gonna, I saw sober people, not all sober people are nice. Like that's, that's just the way of it. Some people are just jerks and some people are just, um, violent. And that's, I mean, you hear about like sober, violent people all the time. So it's not saying that like, that's giving us a free pass is like, Oh, I was drinking. Therefore I did X, Y, Z. But, um, but you know, I just, I think that <laughs> I can't, I can't deal with her right now. Um, so I think that's like the biggest thing, but you know, I've been, um, I moved to Denver, um, in 2006. 14. I met my now husband. We moved to Virginia in 2015. We got married. I now live in South Korea. I've been sober through it all. I've been sober through, um, I got to watch the birth of a child. I also got to watch my grandpa take his last breath, which I consider an honor and a privilege because aside from a child being born, getting to watch somebody kind of pass on into whatever's next, I think is one of the most spiritual experiences you can ever have. And um, you know, I've learned a lot about myself over the years. I don't attend 12 step programs anymore. I made the decision to stop doing that about three years ago. It just was not fitting with my life, um, the way that I wanted it to. And I believe that, I believe it's really, really, really important the first several years, but I believe that as long as you're still practicing those principles, then you're still like remembering where you came from, just don't forget, you know, don't forget. And if you start feeling squirrely, go to a meeting, you know, it's really easy to like keep this thing, keep this thing in check. But, um, that's like way more detailed. Wow. Wow. This is like like the longest (laughs) podcast episode I've ever recorded in the entire time, but I'm just like sitting here captivating. No, don't apologize. I'm sitting here captivated, like crying and then like laughing and then crying again. And it's just like, because as somebody who has seen it go down, like this has been very therapeutic for me to hear the perspective of somebody going through that because I honestly don't think my ex is truly healed. I, I see it sometimes that sparkle you're talking about where you just look at them and you know, like you may, you may not be like, you may not be on drugs in this moment when I'm talking to, but you're not fully sober. Right. Mm -hmm. Like you see that and it breaks, it breaks my heart because like, this is somebody who, um, who my daughter goes and visits. And every time she goes, I have to worry about like, what if he's not sober? Like, and would he hurt her the way he hurt me? And would he drive in the car with her when he is high or drunk? You know, those sort of things to where like, Kara, I cannot explain how thankful I am that you are willing to tell your story. And I really hope that everybody stuck through and listened to the entire thing. Because to me, it was absolutely something I needed to hear. And I'm like choked up right now, like trying not to cry. Because like, one, you're super brave to to share your story out there. And I know you've done it multiple times. But two, what life could you touch? You know what I mean? Who might listen to this podcast episode and hear it and needed to hear that either because they're going through it 
or because they know somebody who is, and maybe they have empathy and they can understand, or, or it helps them make a decision that they need to know because they know like this person right now is not going to get sober and I cannot put myself through this anymore because with my ex, that's what it was is like, I kept thinking because I'd see that sparkle because he'd get sober and then it'd be done. So I, I mean, I'm going to wrap this up because like I said, it's the longest podcast episode that I have Uh-oh. ever done. Did I leave you? No, I, you're, I got you. Um, it's the longest podcast oh. episode I've ever okay. done. You froze for a second. I was um, like, yeah, no. <laughs> but totally, totally worth it. Um, if, is there anything that you want to leave my audience with before we wrap this up? Um, yeah, I think, and like, there's probably, probably going to get the baby crying in the background now, but, um, but yeah, I think the one thing, and it actually came up when you were talking about like, you know, maybe somebody needs to hear this who has somebody in their life. One of the hardest things for the people watching, like the alcoholic or the addict suffer through this there, you can't make somebody get sober. Like there's nothing. Trust me. My mom tried everything she could have possibly done to get me sober and none of it worked because I wasn't ready. And the hard and painful truth about alcoholics and addicts is like, we have to reach a bottom. We have to reach some point where we're like, this is enough for me. And like I had said before, like for me, that took a few years. I mean, granted, this has been going on to some extent my entire life, but, um, but for some people that takes decades. And like, if you are listening to this and you have somebody in your life like that right now, Um, I know that it's going to be tempting to try to drag them into sobriety, like kicking and screaming, but it doesn't work like that. They need to have some level of willingness and openness, um, to the idea of it because it just like, for whatever reason, we just need to be really fucked up before we're willing to give this thing a shot. And yes, of course, like present the idea to them. But if you feel like you're going to have to drag somebody into this, the best thing to do is going to be to focus on yourself instead and just be there if they need you, but just know that there's not a whole lot you can do. And I wish that there was, but, um, you know, later in my sobriety, I ended up going to a program called Al-Anon and it's for Mm -hmm. people who have alcoholics and addicts in their lives. And I went to it because I was still suffering with some of the behaviors because I grew up with an alcoholic in my life. Like I grew up with my father in my life and I never dealt with that. So, um, I had to go to this program and I highly, highly recommend it because it teaches you how to kind of love with detachment, um, and still be there, but to not be like so completely enveloped by this person and their behavior. And obviously it's a lot harder, you know, if it's a kid or your spouse or someone versus if it's like a brother or sister or something like that, it's, it's easier to separate yourself from some people than others, but absolutely highest recommended program because it will really, really help you, um, continue to like survive and live, um, while this person is, is finding their bottom. And, um, and just, you know, like Megan and I started talking in the very beginning about, um, you know, the person not, we don't, we're not doing this because we hate you or because, you know, we don't want your help. Like alcoholics and addicts, that, that darkness, that festering rot that I talked about is present in every single alcoholic and addict I've ever, ever met. And just know that it's not personal, you know, like it's not personal. It's not because of you. It's not because of something you did. It's not your fault. 
it is us and it is something wrong with us that flipped a switch at some point. And, um, and I just, you know, I send you all my love. And honestly, if any of you ever want to reach out to me, like, please feel free. I am an open book and I'm happy to pass on experiences. And, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not a therapist. I'm not licensed in any way, but I have a shitload of experience and I'd be more than happy to share that if anybody needs it. And I'll be linking up all of the things that you sent me in the show notes, inspiredwomenpodcast.com. Kara, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. This has been just very profound and I can't express my gratitude enough for you doing this. Well, thank you for having me, Megan. It was definitely an honor, any privilege, and I have to go get the screaming monster in the next room now. So time to go be mom. (laughs) Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Inspired Women podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, share this out with your friends and family, and join us in the Inspired Women community on Facebook. I'll catch you next week.